Okay, we usually just mean mildly annoyed, but the point is there's people, right, who are very dear to you and you would do anything to take care of them, but sometimes you just have to get away from them, right? Both love and hate. Sometimes people who claim to be Christians can try to have a love-hate relationship with Jesus and with the world around us. I love that Jesus is going to let me go to heaven when I die, but I hate that Jesus tells me to share the gospel with my neighbors. Or I hate when I look at some of the things that are going on in our world, but I love how much praise I get from people at work or how much praise my kids get at school. Love and hate. It's not supposed to be this way. And Jesus is going to make that abundantly clear in our passage this morning. Those who truly follow Jesus hate the world. They turn their eyes from this world to the Jesus whom they love. And this only happens by death alone. By Christ's death and by us sharing in that death as we die to the ways of this world. So let's jump into our passage when John chapter 12, start in verse 20. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we begin this passage with a, an introduction to a new group of people, right? The Greeks. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, we really haven't seen much about them. Not their presence, at least. They may have been referred to in other passages. These are the non-Jewish people. And they come to this feast, and they're making this request to see Jesus. Now, this is certainly odd-sounding, right? These non-Jews are worshiping at the Jewish feast of Passover, and now they're asking to see this who was just called the king of Israel, right? This Messiah figure, Jesus. So while that's odd sounding and surprising, what's even more surprising is Jesus' first words when he hears that they want to see him. When he finds out that these Greeks want to see him, look at what he says. We're jumping to verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus hears that the Greeks are interested in seeing him, and his immediate response is the time has come for his 
glory. Why does the arrival of the Greeks all of a sudden now mean it's time for Jesus to receive glory? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, we studied the passage where Caiaphas speaks greater than he knows, where he says that we should allow one man to die for the nation, right? His whole point was we need to kill Jesus so that the nation of Israel isn't taken over by Rome because Jesus is gaining popularity. But John says he spoke greater than he knew because Jesus does die for the nation, but not only for the nation, what does he say? That by the death of Jesus, he is going to gather in the scattered nations. And now what do we find? Now, a nation, Greeks outside of Israel, are now being gathered to Jesus. They're coming saying, we want to see Jesus. So I think Jesus responds with these words about his glorification because the gathering of the Greeks is a clue that Jesus' death is approaching. Jesus already knows this, right? He knows this as he approaches Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples this, but now he's making it known not only to his disciples, but now to these Greeks. Because these Greeks are probably similar to the Jewish people in that they're anticipating from this Jesus, this Messiah, this King of Israel, some sort of governmental reign, right? Some sort of administrative power that Jesus is going to have. So Jesus then speaks to them and says, the hour is coming, the hour is here for my glorification. But then what he does is he turns it completely upside down to describe the process of that glorification. Right? The Jews and Greeks would both have latched on to this idea of, here's the King of Israel, here's the Messiah, and he says the hour has come for his glory. Yes, that's what we've been waiting for. But as quickly as he mentions his glory... He gets very specific as to what that glory is going to look like. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses an illustration here to make the point that his glory is going to come by his own death. You see your first point in the outline there from your bulletin. Jesus' fruit by death. Now this concept is completely foreign to the Jews and the Greeks alike. In fact, it's foreign to us, isn't it? If you were trying to give honor to somebody and call that person your king, you'd expect some sort of powerful indicators to show this kingly power. And imagine this one that you're trying to honor now turns to you and says, the hour, the time has come for me to receive glory. And your heart resounds with a yes, with an amen. That's what I've been waiting for. You are my king. But in the very next breath, he says, I'm going to die. Wait. What? What happened to you being king How is it that you're going to receive glory in death? So Jesus gives this illustration from the agricultural world for us in verse 24. A grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die in order for it to bear fruit. Otherwise, it would remain 
alone. And we can make sense of that illustration from our own experience, can't we? Just look at the weather outside right now. Right? As we get into the fall weather, many of us love to see the changes in colors and the atmosphere of the harvest and the celebration that comes with the cooler weather. But if we really think about it, what's happening around us in this moment? Everything is dying. That's what fall is. It's the process of death in creation. And then our spirits, right, are, are once lifted again when we get past winter and now life begins to spring up into creation again. So this illustration is true. If you really think about the agricultural world, think about creation itself, this is true, right? Unless the seed falls into the earth and dies, it will never produce any fruit. Right? Try explaining the process of planting crops to someone who has no awareness whatsoever of what that process looks like. Right? Imagine for the first time somebody's seen seeds and dirt and the ground, and, and you tell them the way you get this to grow is you bury the seed in the ground so it gets no sunlight. Right? So that it dies in the ground in order to produce fruit. That would be appalling to someone hearing it for the first time. But it's normal for us because we see creation around us and we see this process happen every year. And so Jesus gives this illustration. But what's so shocking with this illustration is Jesus is not just saying it about the agricultural world. He's saying it now about himself. He gives no further explanation at this point in time about his death. All he does is he speaks this illustration and ends it about himself. He continues to talk, but not about his own death. So what we have to do is we have to link what Jesus says in this illustration with what Jesus just said about his glorification. His glory is only going to come through his death. If Jesus did not go to the cross, he would have been alone. Nobody would be saved. Nobody would see his glory. Neither Jew nor Greek would be able to be brought back into relationship with God the Father. While it surely makes sense in the agricultural realm, this is a stunning reality for a person to say about himself. Not a single person in all of human history would have expected that Jesus would receive his glory through death. But that's exactly what Jesus is telling us here, is absolutely necessary. Just as it is required for a grain of wheat to fall into the earth and die to produce fruit, it is also demanded that Jesus must die in order to accomplish everything he came to accomplish. But that leaves us with the question is, what is that? When Jesus says, by dying, he's going to produce fruit, what are the fruits that Jesus is going to produce by his death? I think we see three things in in Scripture, generally speaking. First, Jesus saves those who belong to him. Right? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, that they may have life and have it abundantly. It is by the death of Jesus alone that any of us have any sort of hope for all of eternity. So that's the first one. He saves those who belong to him. Second, the death of Jesus gathers the nations. Now we see some hinting at this 
with the arrival of the Greeks here, but I think it's confirmed in the next paragraph, if you just jump to verse 32, look at what Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That does not mean that every single human being in human history believes in Jesus. But what Jesus means here is he's not just drawing Israel to himself, but he's drawing people from all sorts of nations, from all different walks of life to himself. And so I think it's confirmed here that Jesus, his death, gathers the nations. And last, the death of Jesus is the means by which Jesus is glorified. That's what we see specifically in this passage. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and this is going to happen by His death. And remember what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John about what it means for Jesus to display glory. It is Jesus displaying who God the Father is to the world. So while for us, in our minds, death and glory seem to be at odds with each other, Consider this reality. Where Jesus most visibly displays who God is to the world is at the cross. Where Jesus most most visibly displays who God is to the world is at the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see both aspects that most people think of God is at odds with each other. We see the justice of God. And that God pours out his wrath for sin upon Jesus. Justice. God doesn't just glance over sin. He pours out wrath for sin. But it's also where we see the grace of God meet with his justice because he's pouring out his wrath on his own son who didn't deserve that wrath because it was our wrath. So it's at the cross that we see Jesus displaying for us who God is, God's justice and God's love and God's grace. But Jesus doesn't just stop speaking after this proclamation about his own death. He does stop talking about his own death, but he continues to speak, but now he switches over to how he wants other people to respond to his death and his glory. It is here that we see Jesus' death and for our sin and his death for his glory is to be imitated by those who believe in him. Followers of Jesus are also supposed to die in order to receive eternal life. Your second point there in the outline, our eternal life by death. As if the news of the King of Israel, Jesus himself is going to be glorified through death, wasn't shocking, stunning enough for the crowd. Now Jesus makes it abundantly clear to the Greeks, to his disciples, and to us that we only find life when we also die. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Now, Jesus uses hyperbolic language here of loving life and hating life in this world. This doesn't contradict what Jesus says elsewhere where he says, love your neighbor or take care of your children, any of that. That's not negated by the fact that he says, hate your life in this world. He's using this love-hate language to agitate our hearts. He wants the Greeks and he wants us to consider, how tightly am I holding on to the things of this world? Versus, how much am I willing to let go of my life? And what we find just from this verse is that those who love this life, those who hold on to earthly things, whether it be money, your family, school, sports, possessions, popularity, or your career, end up losing their lives. But those who hate their lives in this world, those who are willing to detach themselves from these things in this world are the ones who end up getting to keep their life for all eternity. Let me just give you another way that Jesus states this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Did you catch it there? You must lose your life. You must die to yourself for the sake of Jesus in order to truly find your life. You can gain everything in this world, but still end up losing your soul. The only hope for eternal life is for you to die, to lose your life, to hate life in this world, to take up your cross, to deny yourself in order that your soul might gain eternal life. And this eternal life is not just some future reality that one day you're going to get to. It must be present right here, right now. Because look what Paul tells believers to do in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This putting to death is not that one day in the future you're going to leave all these earthly things behind when you physically die. This putting to death is a command to happen right now in your life. These earthly things are to be denied right now because... If you really believe in Jesus, if you really follow Jesus, then you died with Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 6. Last passage for this section. Romans 6, starting verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Your hope of sharing in the resurrection of Jesus is not just a physical resurrection in the future, but a soul resurrection that happens right now. But your only chance of sharing in that resurrection in the future and right now is if you first have shared in Christ's death. You must be buried with him. The earthly things must be buried. You must hate life in this world in order to have the newness of life in Christ. In our earlier years of marriage, Lydia and I didn't have much money to do fun activities together. Sometimes our outing for the week was literally once a week we go grab McDonald's together, and that was the end of it. Well, every so often we would receive coupons in the mail for certain restaurants, one of which that Lydia enjoyed that we never really got to go to very often because it's one of the more expensive fast food places, at least in our minds, is Arby's. It tended to be more expensive, so we just ended up not going there very often. But we would get these coupons where you could get a meal for two, including drinks and an appetizer, for like $15. Right? That was quite exciting for us to change it up for our fun activity for the week. We get this great reward, this extra food and a drink even, while having to pay less. I'm afraid too many Christians in our world think that there are coupons for Christianity. Jesus, I'll tithe. I'll go to church regularly. I'll try to be nice to people. I'll maybe even volunteer from time to time, and that's my payment. But when something else in this world rises up, and I'm not talking about when you get sick or when you have your once-a-year family vacation, but lesser things. When something else rises up, I'm still going to go ahead and I'm going to skip church. I'm still going to spend extravagant amounts of money on possessions. I'm still not going to share the gospel with anybody around me. But I'm still a Christian. My friends, we've got to remember there is no coupon code for Christianity. There's nothing that you're going to be able to cut out and show Jesus at the end of your life that's going to let you off the hook for trying to call yourself a Christian and still loving this life. There's only one response that gives us eternal life, and that's the response of death to self. By death alone. That's it. In fact, Jesus even warns people in Matthew chapter 7. It's not going to be up there, but there are people who come to Jesus and say on the last day, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, Jesus? And many of you probably know what Jesus says. He turns to them and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. I'm afraid... Those words are what so many Christians or so-called claimed Christians are going to hear on the last day because they don't take this word in John chapter 12 of Jesus seriously when he says you must hate your life in order to keep it. But that leads us to a final question. What about after this death to self? 
First, I know I need to die to self. That's what I'm called to do. But what does life look like as someone who has died to myself? What does life look like for the person who picks up their cross and who detaches themselves from the things in this world? And that's where Jesus ends up in our final verse and in your final point there. From death to a Christ-serving life. He doesn't tell us just die to self and then you'll figure it out. In this last verse, he tells us, one, what it means to live this eternal life right here, right now. And he gives us two comforts for those who make the decision to do so. So first, he tells us what it looks like to have eternal life. Just look at the first part of verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is what happens when you die to self. You now live to serve Christ. And let me just tell you from the start here that if you're hearing this, if you hear the idea of serving Jesus, and it sounds like a boring or joyless kind of life, then you really don't have any understanding of what it really means to serve him. If just me saying the word serve to you brings up thoughts of obligation, how much is this going to cost me, and I'm going to roll my eyes, well then, you may not have really understood what it really means to die to yourself and receive new life in Jesus. Serving him is not some mundane, uninteresting task. We'll see more of what the comforts are in serving him in a few minutes and why that's so glorious. But notice what Jesus says here. If anyone would serve him, he would follow him. So do you catch that? So first, serving Jesus means you are not in charge of your own life anymore. You are always following his lead, the prompting that he gives you by his spirit working in you and by what you see Jesus doing according to scripture. So it means you are not your own. You're not in charge of yourself anymore. But what it also means is whatever you see Jesus doing in Scripture is exactly what you want to be doing. So you may have the objection, well, I'm not divine. I can't die for the sins of the world. And that's true. But there's plenty of other things that we see Jesus doing that we are called to do. Jesus seeks out the lost the outcasts of society. Jesus rebukes those who think that their religious rituals are enough. Jesus invites the worst of all sinners to come to him and find living water for their souls. He spends his entire ministry pouring his life into 12 disciples. And yes, he does end up even giving up, sacrificing his own life for the sake of our salvation. Do any of those things sound like what your life looks like? If you haven't shared the gospel with somebody recently, which Jesus are you following? If you aren't discipling another person or teaching someone else about Jesus who maybe has just entered into the faith, then what kind of Jesus are you following? If you aren't willing to give up your life in order that other people might be saved, then which Jesus? Jesus of the Bible are you seeking after? The new life Jesus brings you into is a life of serving him, which only happens when you are following him and what you see him doing according to scripture. 
There's no exceptions here. If your boss at work comes to you and says, follow me, and walks out the door, you might want to think about the consequences if you decide to not follow him or her. So why is it that people who call themselves Christians do that with Jesus with no thought? Jesus comes and says, follow me, and it's like, well, maybe. If I'm in the mood, if there's not too many people watching, And this isn't just their boss. This is the one that they claim is Lord. God Almighty saying, follow me, look at my life, and live your life in the same way. They're like, eh, we'll see. Those who die to self and live to serve Christ will follow him in whatever they see him doing. And there's two final comforts for those who make the decision to serve Christ and follow him. Two comforts in verse 26. First one, and where I am, there will my servant be also. So first, servants of Christ will be with Christ. Notice what Jesus is specifically saying here, because it might... It might be a temptation for us to switch what he's really saying, right? We might think Jesus is saying, wherever my servant is, I will be with him. I'm going to go with my servant wherever he goes, which is true, right? That's the promise that Jesus makes at the Great Commission, right? I will be with you even to the end of the age. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, my servant will be where I am. For those who follow Jesus, you can be sure of this. You are with him. This is even greater than the promise for him to be with you. Now you get to be with him. And where is Jesus? He's seated in the heavenly places with God the Father. And I want you to look in Ephesians 2 what Paul says about us who are made alive in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, though. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For those who are true servants of Christ, you are already seated with him in the heavenly places. It may not be your physical reality yet, but it's still true of you today and will one day be your full reality. So that's the first promise. That's the first comfort. Not that Jesus is with you, which is true, but that you are with Jesus. And the second comfort is in these last words of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice where Jesus began his words and ends his words in this passage. First, it's his hour to be glorified. His hour to be seen for who he truly is. And it's going to happen by his death. Now, on the back end, those who die to self, those who share in Christ's death, will receive honor from God the Father. Now, this isn't the same. Christ's glory and our honor are not the same thing, and that some way we also get to be equal to Jesus. But it does mean that God will give recognition to those who faithfully serve Christ. 
There is a reward for those who give up life in this world in order to follow Jesus. But this only matters, this is only a comfort if you actually care about the honor coming from God the Father. I think that's one of the most sorrowful realities of our present day church. We have many people who claim to be Christians who would rather receive honor from people in this world than honor from God the Father. This comfort that Jesus speaks here at the end means very little to those kinds of people. But for those of us whose hearts have been changed, those who see Christ as worthy of dying to ourselves, and we will follow him wherever he leads, these comforts are everything. No matter what you're facing in life, you can deny yourself You can turn from this world and turn towards Jesus because you know these two things are true. You will be with him and the Father will honor you. So brothers and sisters, let me make it short and simple as we end. One question. Do you love your life in this world or do you hate it? If you find yourself being the person who wants to hold on to it, then Jesus' glory by his death, you having eternal life, you getting to be with Jesus, you receiving honor from the Father, is going to mean very little to you. You will continue to keep living for these earthly hopes and will end up losing your life, even losing your soul in the process. But if you see the glory of Christ in his death, And you say, I will share in that death. I will die to self. Then you can be sure of this. That as you seek to serve Christ, as you seek to follow him according to what his word says, you have two comforts to take with you. You are with Jesus right now. Seated in the heavenly places. And the Father will honor you. If you have shared in Christ's death, you can take comfort in these two glorious truths as you seek for the rest of your life to serve him, to seek after him, to follow him wherever it is that we see him go. You are promised this. These are comforts for you to latch onto and hold onto. Just imagine these two truths reigning in your life. You are with Jesus right now. And the Father is going to honor you. Let's pray together. Father, it can be so easy for the sin inside of us to latch on to the things in this world and hold on tightly to them. Help us this morning in seeking to follow Jesus. Help us to have a greater understanding of what it means to die to self what it means to hate life in this world, 
what it means to deny these earthly things, what it means to pick up our cross and follow him. May none of us leave this room this morning content. Content in thinking that we can somehow offer some of ourselves. That we can offer things with the appearance of faithfulness with our hearts not following along. May none of us think that that's okay. May we at least all walk out of here with the understanding that it's all or nothing. That we must be willing to lose our life in order to keep it. That if we are going to try to love it and hold on to it, we will end up losing it. Help us, Father, to be more faithful, to serve Christ, to see everything that Christ does, and want our lives to look exactly that way. May that be our desire, and may that desire come to fruition as we go throughout our week. That we would seek to live as true Christians, as true believers, as ones who represent Christ to the world around us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As they come up to close for the last song.